Hi, this is Mimi and welcome to my podcast, The Lovely Becoming. Today's guest is Dr. Laura Anderson, who's an amazing therapist and um, doctorate level um, teacher and just like amazing Instagram person. Um, And she's taught me a lot about religious trauma. So I'm really excited to have you on. Hi, Laura. Hi, Mimi. It's so good to be here. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate your time. Yes, of course. It's great. Uh, I'm so excited about what you're doing and I'm glad to have this conversation today. Yes. Um, So first off, tell us about yourself. What do you do? What do you love? (sighs) That's a big question. Let's see. (laughs) What do I do? Uh, Like you said, I'm a therapist. I'm here in Nashville, Tennessee, have my own private practice and have had that for about almost 10 years now. Um, And through that, like through kind of getting to know myself as a therapist and being able to specialize more and more, I've been able to kind of narrow my practice down into working with clients who have a lot of complex trauma. And within that, I really specialize in sexualized violence, domestic violence, and religious trauma. And, um, Also, as part of my professional identity, I'm the co-founder of the Religious Trauma Institute with my colleague, Brian Peck, who is Room to Thrive out in Boise, Idaho. And we focus on training uh, clinicians, coaches, other helpers, healers, um, advocates um, to be able to work with people who have experienced religious trauma. And then I also just recently uh, opened the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery, which is an online coaching practice. Um, All of the uh, practitioners there are trauma-trained and trauma-informed and understand religious trauma very well. Um, and we meet, we have practitioners all over the country, um, and they meet online in individual coaching and group coaching. Um, yeah, to, to work through various aspects of religious trauma, faith deconstruction, purity, culture, adverse religious experiences. So that's my professional identity. And then, yeah, personally, I, I'm actually feel like I'm in a spot of learning a new personal identity for the last several years. I've been in school, um, which has taken up a lot of my time, a lot of my spare spare free time. I didn't even know how much it took up until I was done. Um, so I feel like I'm rediscovering myself and and both like resting after like a really fast paced four years of getting my doctorate. Um, And then also like, okay, now what do I want to do? Like, do I need to watch Grey's Anatomy for the fourth time? Or, I mean, obviously, yes. Um, (laughs) But also what else can I do? Um, And so, yeah, so I'm finding myself writing a lot, trying to be outside when it's not so crazy hot out. Um, I have developed a really wonderful group of friends um, that have a similar background to me, which is is nice to um, have come out of something together and be moving it forward in life together as well. Um, And I have a lovely dog who you might hear in the background once or twice, and she... just ran in. She (laughs) must know I'm talking about her. Um, so she is my little, my little pride and joy that I love spending time with. Um, we spend lots of time outside. So yeah, that's kind of a little bit of who I am. (laughs) I love that. I thank you so much for sharing. I feel like there's, it's just really joyful to hear about your Mm -hmm. life a little bit and who you are, especially before we jump into the questions and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. At, whatever you want to know, I'm an open book. (laughs) Love it. Love it. (laughs) Um, what drew you to this work? So therapy in general or religious trauma or yes. (laughs) Yeah. I think, um, religious trauma specifically would be really interesting to hear. Yeah. I think in some ways it was a little bit unplanned. Um, 
I began deconstructing from my faith, the beginning of my master's degree program, which interestingly was at Liberty University. And it was like the first day of class. Um, one of the professors said something and I was like, Oh, like if that's true. And I'm pretty sure it is like, I think I might need to start examining a bunch of different things. And so I never dreamed that my own journey in that way would lead to, um, having a passion for working with religious trauma. I mean, I feel like at the time, this is, you know, early to mid 2000s and religious trauma wasn't really on the map. You know, um, I could identify that I had some really, what I would call uncomfortable church experiences. Now I would say very spiritually abusive. Um, but at the time that that was the, the only language that I had. And so as I continued my own process of deconstruction, which again, I didn't call it that, it was just asking questions in secret. Um, Cause we also didn't have social media back then. So like nobody else, I, I was like, I think I might be the only person in the world who is like asking these questions. Cause I just didn't know where to find anyone else. Um, but yeah, as I continued asking questions and even finding other people that were just kind of like randomly passing by the by, it's like somebody would say something. I'm like, Oh, Gosh, that sounds familiar. That sounds like something I'm asking. And so I, I started to notice it also in the language that my clients were using. Um, like I said, I'm here in the Bible Belt. So, it, you know, in Nashville, when you move here, they ask you, what's your name and what church do you go to? And um, <laughs> And people laugh, but, but like, it's like legitimately true. Like that's just how, how it is here. Um, and so there's just kind of this expectation. Everybody believes in a certain way, um, operates kind of thinking value system and whatnot. And as I started to notice my clients coming in, they would, you know, just say things here and there that were just like, hey, gosh, I mean, this is what I've always grown up believing, but it doesn't sit right with me. I have a lot of cognitive dissonance around this. Um, and and yeah, it just kind of like spiraled from, from there in a good way. Um, I wasn't something I was public about at first because again, it's, it was a little bit overwhelming to say, I work with people that have had really bad religious experiences, harmful church experiences, abusive situations that are now resulting in trauma. But once 2016 hit with the, the election of Donald Trump, and that it was a really pivotal moment in post-religious world. Like, I think because of, you know, a couple of things like coalescing of like social media, having a lot of like holy cow, what just happened politically, but also how that happened within our churches and hearing the leaders and the values that we had held to like so tightly now being kind of discarded to in favor of this person of a of a particular political party. I, I think a lot of people started to go like, I have to start questioning. And so for myself and many other colleagues that I've talked to is we really started to notice a difference back in the end of, 20, uh, well, probably middle of 2016, where people were just really untethered and disoriented by what was happening. Um, and so I, yeah, again, just kind of this like snowball that started rolling and just kept going in the, I think it was the, um, was it like, 2018 or 2019, I was in my practicum for my PhD program. And in, when you're doing your PhD, you can like do whatever you want for a practicum, which is so nice. Um, and I was like, well, I don't need any more clinical hours. So I'm going to like write a manual for, um, for mental health clinicians on religious trauma, because I don't have 
the capacity to see every single religious trauma client, but maybe if I could like create a resource that people could at least like, you know, have like a brief overview of what this is and how do we work with it and some things to consider. And through that, I was on Twitter and uh, put out like a call for like, hey, what would you want your therapist to know about religious trauma? And I was not a big social media person. So I thought I'd get like 10 responses and I got like hundreds of responses. Um, which was overwhelming, but that is kind of my entrance into like the ex-evangelical community. It's where I met my uh, friend and colleague, Brian Peck. And we, we were like, oh, we think about this in a really particular, similar way. And so like, let's collaborate. Um, and, and yeah, so things just kind of, kind of went. And I, I feel like even with the pandemic that was happening, that brought up a lot of unrest for a lot of people. It really challenged how do we take in information? Who do we listen to? How do I listen to myself? Um, and so I've seen even over the last 18 months, um, just kind of a different turn in religious trauma of like really having to focus on like trusting yourself, trusting your body. I have a body, you know, those sorts of things. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of the, the tip of the iceberg, but a little long-winded way of like how I got into this work, but it is, I feel like it's, like my life work at this point. Um, I'm really passionate about that and, um, and hopeful to continue in it for quite a long time. That's amazing. I think a lot of us come to this work later on in life and, um, yeah. you know, cause as kids we're so susceptible to yes. one way answers and like one mm-hmm. soul truth type of thing. And so I think it makes yeah. sense that certain life situations and different places that we're in, when we have those cognitive skills, we're able to say, actually, like maybe that doesn't fit for me anymore. And that's yeah. okay. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it's a really brave person that does that because to your point, when we're taught, like there's one way to think, one way to act, like, and anything outside of that is sinful with this potential consequence of eternal tor- uh, conscious torment, like that that is overwhelming. That can feel very threatening to your nervous system. So it takes a really brave person to even just consider that I could ask a question about something outside of this and I can allow myself to continue asking questions and consider other viewpoints and opinions. So uh, I applaud every person who's, who has started deconstructing or is in the middle of it or feel like they're at the end of it or whatever, because that's a brave person. Definitely. It's scary work, you know, going against the grain and leaving that safety of community of like feeling sometimes secure. Um, and so you lose a lot, but you gain a lot too. Yes. Yeah. It is not an easy process. I, there's different people that have posted over time that have said like, if I knew that it was going to be this hard, I don't know if I would have started this process. And, and I can really empathize with that because I mean, there it uproots your entire life, your entire belief system, everything shifts. And that is wildly unsettling and, and not for the faint of heart. Um, and yeah, it's really hard work. It's it is rewarding and it's really hard. <laughs> yes. Both and yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so what are adverse religious experiences? Um, and how are they similar and different to adverse childhood experiences? Yes, I'm actually pulling up our official definition of it. Um, but the way that we came up with the term adverse 
religious experiences was definitely based off of um, the adverse childhood experiences. And so I don't know, I'm assuming you, but I don't know if your uh, listeners are familiar with the ACEs study and whatnot, but essentially it's, it's talking, it, it categorize, it has 10 categories of like different things that you might experience in childhood and your ACE score or your adverse childhood religion experience, sorry, not religious, adverse childhood experience score, the higher it is, the higher the likelihood that you, uh, that it would have resulted in trauma or other um, kind of long-term impactful um, symptoms, consequences, um, illnesses, these sorts of things. Um, and so one of the things, you know, when we talk about trauma, religious trauma, um, or any trauma, you know, I think it's important to have that understanding of what is trauma. Um, you know, and so the way I define it is trauma is not the thing that happened to you, but the way that your body or your nervous system responds to the thing that happens to you. And so oftentimes it's anything that's too much, too soon, too fast, too dangerous, too overwhelming, that kind of uproots our normal ability to cope and, and come back to a place of safety. Um, and so, so religious just becomes an adjective to help us like understand um, the context for where that trauma may have occurred in. Um, but one of the things with the Religious Trauma Institute, and this was actually in collaboration with the Reclamation Collective as well, is that we started to notice like not everybody identifies with the term like religious abuse um, or spiritual abuse. Um, not everybody really identifies with the concept of religious trauma or, or would say that their experiences resulted in religious trauma. And so we wanted to identify a different term that would be just more kind of all encompassing, but might also feel, oh, what's the word, like inclusive enough to kind of go like, yeah, my experiences were valid, they matter, they had an impact. It may not have resulted in trauma, but it still has an impact on me. And so the definition, because, and this is a working definition, it's not, I mean, we are open to it changing and, or expanding or whatever. Um, but the definition that we've been using for adverse religious experience is any experience of a religious belief, practice, or structure that undermines an individual's sense of safety or autonomy and, or negatively impacts their physical, social, emotional, relational, or psychological well-being. And just like the ACEs study, what our kind of hypothesis is, is that the more adverse religious experiences that you have, the potential is greater for it to result in religious trauma. Similar to with ACEs, the, the higher the score, the more likely it is that it would result in developmental trauma um, or you know, long-term consequences. And so that's kind of our hypothesis in using the term adverse religious experience, even though there hasn't been formal research done on it at this point. It's in the works. It just hasn't like happened. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious too, what I was thinking about when you were talking about this was the way you phrased it in terms of resulting in trauma. Mm -hmm. And so can the trauma, like that trauma response show up later after the thing has happened, maybe years ago, when you're just starting to realize that was traumatic? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, a lot of, you know, we're very familiar, I think nowadays with language like fight, flight, freeze, fawn, these sorts of things. And those would just be considered trauma responses, different things that are happening that our nervous system determines in a millisecond beyond our conscious mind or beneath our conscious mind of what is the best response in order to keep us alive in this 
uh, real or perceived dangerous moment. It can take a long time to show up in a really active or obvious way. And the reason being, especially when we're having to spend prolonged amounts of time in freeze and fawn together, um, we, we literally are that we're frozen and we're in a, this perpetual cycle of like just needing to stay alive, right? And so um, that, that's it. Like that's what our body is programmed to do. And that's what it's doing. And so sometimes it's not until we get out of these real or perceived dangerous situations that other things start to show up within us. Um, whether that's increased hypervigilance, social anxiety, um, digestive issues, social phobias, relational issues, because our body is finally having the ability to like come back down to the ground essentially, um, but also still doesn't have a sense of safety um, necessarily and, and knowing how to cope with things because when we've been in these really uh, precarious situations for an extended amount of time, we're just, we're constantly scanning for danger because we're trying to stay safe. So um, we often do actually see that the symptoms ramp up like significantly worse after we are out of some of these like high demand, high control religious systems. Now that's not everybody. Um, I, I think it's very common that people will experience different things, uh, whether that's like anxiety, digestive issues, you know, symptoms that um, we might not naturally correlate to like, this is a dangerous situation. Um, it's just like the way our body is kind of manifesting the trauma externally, but we might not be able to connect it for a variety of reasons. Maybe we wouldn't know that, or maybe it's not safe to connect that at that point. You know, I'm having all of these issues because this situation is very, very dangerous. But if I don't know how to get out of that, or if I have nowhere to go, you know, we just kind of like overlook it and kind of like, you know, push it down as much as we can to try to just manage and get through the situation. It got me thinking about how, like, I think when you, for example, leave church or when you um, get out of an abusive relationship, like when those symptoms heighten, it can feel like maybe I should go back to that situation because it feels worse now, but it's just that we're not used to it and we haven't found those safety um, yeah. mechanisms. Yeah. I think that's such a great, um, like great statement. And I think about too, for so many people coming out of these high demand, high control religions, one of the things that a lot of people are taught is that if you leave, like if, whether it's like, if you leave the church or if you leave God, you're turned over to the devil, the devil can have his way with you. And so all these bad things are going to happen to you because you don't have the protection of the church or this community around you, or God is doing whatever God wants to do to try to get you back into the fold. And we're taught that, and that's a fear tactic that is used to keep people in those groups. But, but then when we get out and maybe our anxiety increases drastically or different relationships fall apart or whatever it might be, it is affirming this deep fear that we already might have because this is what we were told for our whole entire lives. And so it, it can cause a lot of then in like even more increased symptoms, anxiety, whatnot, because now like the thing is happening that we were told was going to happen. And I don't think I can go back, but also like, how do I stay in this space? Um, and I think that's really common. I know for myself, there was a point I was in a domestically violent relationship 
coming straight out of very abusive church situations. And I remember being able to see it really, really clearly one day and being like, I know that these are both like really abusive systems slash relationships. Um, but I, I've never known anything outside of it. And so in my framework, all I know is that this is how life is. And I have to pick the lesser of two evils because right now I don't think I can live without either. And so I guess I'll choose this relationship because I don't think I can go back to this system, but also maybe this relationship is a punishment for leaving this system. So it's, you can tell it's just so like the stories that we have been taught and what we have to tell ourselves to survive that can often last far outside of like actually leaving that system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that we're so worried that like, if something someone says comes true, Mm -hmm. then maybe we were wrong about our choices. And I think that's so important to learn that, like, even if the feared outcome happens, that doesn't mean you're making the wrong choice. Yes, absolutely. And new things are scary right? Like as humans, we thrive on what is familiar, even if it's not particularly healthy or functional. Um, I call it functional dysfunction where it's like, it may be very dysfunctional, but I know how to handle it. So it feels really functional. So yeah, to do something different, to think on my own, to try something different feels really unfamiliar. And usually scary. And, and our bodies are created to kind of resist that a bit and to go, Oh, I don't know if this is the right thing. So therefore I must be wrong. Yeah. 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 I think I tried to think about, um, like, how did we, how, how is that helpful for us as humans? Um, but how is that maybe not helpful in this specific environment circumstance for this person? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know there's like a little Instagram debate on, is there anything that's really adaptive or maladaptive? I don't know. I don't want to get into it, but I think it is. I tend to think that pretty much all of those things are pretty adaptive because they do help us work. They help us stay safe, even if they might not be the healthiest thing for us, which is subjective from person to person. They, they were adaptive. They really helped us stay alive when we needed it. Definitely. Definitely. Um, so what impact does religion play on different marginalized communities? Maybe some, some teachings that could be harmful or some things that are very core to religion that might, um, inherently be, um, play out differently for marginalized communities. I mean, I think religion has a huge impact on marginalized folks. Like I, like I, part of me is like, I don't, I don't know how it does it. Like there's no area where it doesn't have an impact. I think for me, when I look at, when I look at the systems that it's built on, what, what religion or a lot of high demand, high control religions are built on for me, I think at the bottom is patriarchy. And what I mean by that simply is like, so patriarchy is this belief that there is one person or group of people that is at the top determining everything, the rules, the everything from how how do we spend our money? Like how does business run? Uh, What are the rules for relating to one another? How do we live? How do we act? What's appropriate? What can we do with our bodies? What can we not do with our bodies? 
and, and I could be off and maybe this is a very privileged position, but I, I feel like patriarchy at the bottom is at the bottom of all of this. And, and racism and oppression stems from that, this belief that like one person or group of people somehow is in a position of power and everybody else falls, you know, in line beneath that at differing levels based off of what the person at the top says or the people at the top says. I think we see that in religion. I think we see it in society. I think it's fair to say that all of us and our parents and our grandparents and our grandparents, grandparents, we all have grown up in a patriarchal society. We all have like, and that's not just in religion. This is, we're talking like everywhere where there is a hierarchical system that determines your level of power and control over other people. And so it's like baked into everything, like baked into the way that we relate to others. It's baked into our systems as a society. Um, But I think as it pertains to religion, I mean, I I think about how, I don't know if you're familiar with um, the Duluth Project, which is... um, focused on domestic violence. And they were the people that came up with the resource of what's called the power and control wheel. And it was this, it's this resource that talks about eight different areas of like seemingly benign behavior that ultimately results in power and control over another person and sometimes leads to a more obvious sort of abuse, like physical or sexual abuse. Um, And what they talk about in that is that, you know, there's certain behaviors where like, well, I've I've done that too. You know, I've blamed somebody. I've denied that I've done something. I've called somebody a a bad name or accused them or whatnot of of something that they, that they may or may not have done. And, and it's going, the, the little things by themselves may not be that big of a deal, but stacked on top of one another, they, and over time and consistency, they become, um, really bad. They become a way that one person gains power and control over another person. They erode them, their voice, their autonomy, their body, and so that they can control them. And they can say, you will do what I want you to do. You will go where I want you to go or not go. And I think that's really common in religious systems as well. Um, we have all these different areas that religion, like takes slices of. So it's like on the outside, you're like, I don't know, like the giving them 10% as a tithe, like, I mean, that's not so bad. It's like, that's just like what you do for the church to support. But it's like that maybe combined with here's who you are allowed to love and here's who you're not allowed to love. And here's eternal conscious torment. Or if your body looks this way, you are a lesser of a position or you must submit to another person who looks differently. And you start to combine all these things on top of each other. And you're like, oh, wow, like that's a really abusive, oppressive system. And so I think that the more um, like the more quote unquote different you are from the, the top of that, that pyramid, which is typically cis white males, um, the more marginalized you become and the more restrictions are put on you as your body, how you show up, who you can love, who's not, who you're not allowed to love. And then also consequences because of all of those things. Um, that's, I, I, yeah, I feel like there's probably 
like more discussion around, (laughs) around that. But like, that's kind of how I see that because, because also then what it does is it gives permission for that system to continue on and on. And it gives permission to people to, for people to treat anybody who's marginalized in very specific ways because like of, of the patriarchal kind of hierarchy system. Yeah. 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 That's really helpful. Um, I think it's interesting too, to think about how kind of like what you said, like the farther away you get from those certain identities, the more marginalized you are. Um, And it's really interesting also to think about how like these systems have been around for so long historically that other systems that came up later are very much ingrained in those older. Yes. uh, Yeah. Absolutely. Even, even though, I mean, I think we are now in a time where we're starting to see things for how they truly were. And we're starting to see the problems in them. We're trying to like design new systems, but there's still those systems. Like, you, you know, I, th- I think about like, even in the religious trauma community, um, you know, we come out of this really fundamentalist background And when we come out of that, we're like, no, I want nothing to do with that. I'm pro all this. I'm anti all this. I'm whatever. And we swing to this other side of the spectrum that's equally as fundamentalist. Um, And, but we're, we have a different message. And because it's so different than this other message, we're like, we're good. Right. And it's like, well, actually we're, we are actually perpetuating the same system. We're still, you know, there's still a hierarchy of like what you're supposed to believe, how you're supposed to act, who you can interact with, um, how, how we determine who gets to be a leader. Um, you know, because again, of your body, um, you know, there's people that are more easily listened to because we've been trained to listen to those people. And so I think it's important to recognize like that stuff lives inside of us. And that's part of the work of healing from religious trauma, or maybe just life in general (laughs) is recognizing how these systems show up inside of us, like how we have embodied like fundamentalism, how we have embodied patriarchy, and perhaps we'll never be able to get rid of it because of when we live and where we live and, and whatever, but at least to be able to bring awareness to it so that we have choices. We can give ourselves choices outside of that. Mm -hmm. I think that's really helpful too. And it reminds me of, um, this idea of like a lot of people will turn from one fundamentalist thing to like spirituality. And then there's spiritual abuse that might happen. And it's like, oh, but I thought that was different, but maybe it's similar. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think it's very similar. I think we've, we can see it anywhere really. I mean, I think that, you know, I focus a lot on religious trauma, but it's not lost on me that fundamentalism is not exclusive to religion. Um, you, you can see like a fundamentalist yogi or a fundamentalist vegan, or, you know, any, anything can be very fundamentalist. Any time that we say, this is the right thing for every single person and you must do these things, not do these things. We prescribe life for them. Like that's a fundamentalist system. And in my opinion, that's dangerous because then we get right back into that same, that same way of thinking and relating to others. And I think to your point there, it's very easy to come out and kind of, yeah, just find something that we can cling to and call it our new way of living. And it's just as fundamentalist as what we came out of. But part of that is because like 
that feels safe to us. When we've not been taught how to think, but instead what to think, we come out of this and we're like, oh crap, like I don't know how to live, but here's this person over here in the wellness community that's saying, just do these things. Here's this hack here. Try this, read this book. This is what you have to do to heal. And that feels really attractive. It feels really safe. It feels like it gives us a sense of stability. And, um, as humans, those are real basic needs for us. Um, but it doesn't necessarily promote things like choice and autonomy and nuance and complexity and difference. It just, gives us a different lens to see the world through that still maybe equally as small. Mm. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, I'm wondering about the difference between perpetuating this fundamentalist culture in terms of like saying like there is a right way um, and then maybe social justice type of things where, I don't know, it feels like there's a right way, you know, does that make sense? Like there's a right way in the social justice kind of world, mm-hmm. but how do we keep it away from fundamentalism? Is that what I'm? Yeah. Like how do you encourage things like moving away from oppression as mm-hmm. a value, for example, mm-hmm. um, or treating people or giving people um, equ- equitable access to things, um, which might be considered like a value. It's kind of like in therapy, you know, when people say don't impose your values, but then you're like, my values as a therapist are going to help you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Like boundaries might be like more of a value, but it's like, but that's kind of a really good one. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's actually a really good analogy too, because, um, as unbiased as we are supposed to remain in therapy, we are humans before we're therapists. And so that means we are bringing ourselves into it. But as a therapist, I also have to be not only aware, very aware of that. Um, I have to also maintain a posture of openness and, and really check myself, right. To say like, am I imposing my own boundary in it or my own value? And if I say that my value is important for them, why, like, why do I have to, why do I think that what's important for me needs to be important for them? Um, and, and maybe it is important for them. I'm certainly not saying that's wrong, but I think it's this constant openness uh, to like, consider that my way might not be the way for everybody else you know, we talk about like fundamentalism and social justice. I, I can see where it might be easy to get in or slip into that same mindset of like, in order to really care about social justice, you must, these must be the important issues. You must decry these. If you say these words, then you need, you know, this is kind of your repentance path, you know, these sorts of things. And I think there is so much validity in that, right? Like, I think that consequences and accountability are very necessary. Um, I think in that, uh, you know, one of the things with fundamentalism is here's the voices that you listen to. Here's the voices that you do not listen to. And so I think, you know, with social justice, part of it is going like, we need to look at like, what are the voices we've been trained to listen to because of your body? Um, and can we challenge that we need to diversify and start listening to other people and also leaving space for like differing opinions. Um, you know, I think, I think it's fair to say like what one person thinks would be really helpful social justice, um, advocation, 
another person says is very different, you know, and they go, no, 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 you don't need to do that. You need to do this. Mm -hmm. And so there does have to be a connection to body to go like, how, how does that sit in my body? Like, does that align with my values? Um, while also allowing yourself to be challenged to go like, why does this, this align with me, but this doesn't like, is there, is there something within me? Um, but that feels more open and like choice than fundamentalism. I think so. I think, um, it's kind of like openness seems like the big key and also being able to say like, what is right for me might not be right for everyone else and not impose that on other people. Yes. And being very okay with being wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, fundamentalism is all about certainty. Mm -hmm. This is the right way to do this. I am certain. And I think the opposite of that then would be, um, choice, autonomy, accountability. It's okay for me to be wrong. Like it does not mean some, that I'm a flawed human being. It just means I, I need to open my eyes. I need to open my experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, those feel like very opposite of fundamentalism. Yeah. And I think the more that we like encounter different types of like people and different um, stuff like that, I think the more we're able to move away from fundamentalism because we're listening and we're being open and we're understanding. And that breeds a lot of compassion and um, more desire to advocate for other people type of thing. Yeah. I think as a therapist, um, I remember one of the first kind of lessons that I really learned was that like, when you work with people, like you cannot not be changed. It just like, And I think the first time, this is very bizarre. And of course I am not advocating for abuse at all, but the first, uh, my practicum and internship was at a clinic where I worked exclusively with convicted sex offenders doing group, group, individual family and couples. And I worked a lot with, um, the adolescent sex offenders. Um, they were kind of my primary and, um, you know, I went in like the first few days just with this really like disgusted attitude. Um, because I was like, these are people that are criminals and these are people that have done these awful things. And that's true. They did. (laughs) But especially as I worked with the, um, adolescents, what I quickly realized was that every single one of them had been perpetrated against as well. And it crumbled this really like black and white, like thought that I had, like, you are this evil, horrible person because you did these things. And I was like, you did do these things. These are awful things. You harmed a lot of people and you were harmed yourself. And this is how you learned like how it was okay to be in the world and to relate to others. It was not so cut and dry. So of course I'm not advocating for like, you have to understand your abuser. You have to forgive your, no, like you don't, that's not what I'm saying. It just became very apparent. Like when you work with people, you cannot not be changed because people just do that to you. Right. And so to your point, like when you surround yourself with people, people who are different than yourself, you can't not be changed. You, you can't, it's like almost impossible to see people in boxes anymore because everybody's life is so far outside of that. And so I think there really is like a responsibility that we need to take to like, diversify our friend group, diversify our social media feeds and, and, you know, Twitter, whatever, like listen to podcasts from people who have different life experiences as you like, 
Is it comfortable all the time? No. But do you start to be able to like challenge yourself and like see people as people? Yeah. Like you, that I just, I'm like, when you're in contact with humans, you just can't not like you just, you like everybody becomes very valid and very human. Yeah. I love that. It kind of reminds me too, of like being a therapist is kind of a hard place to be because you do get such a big picture of like the in-depth kind of details. And so there's part of you, or I guess me, that's like, you know, I want to have compassion for this person because they were harmed. Um, And then sometimes I start thinking, well, if I have compassion for them, will I become them and start doing what they do? Um, So I think sometimes then I swing all the way over to like, I can't accept I can't even think about having compassion for you because what if I start? And it's almost like the fear is really more about us than it is about that person. Um, And really finding that ability to hold both the compassion for people um, and also that accountability kind of like, yeah. I think that's really beautifully stated. Yeah. I mean, that's why fundamentalism is so appealing, right? It's either, or I'm compassionate or I'm vilifying. Like, there's no in between, right? To actually though, like hold compassion and accountability means there's nuance and gray space and complexity. And that's a very uncomfortable place to sit in. And it doesn't feel safe most of the time, (laughs) right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, and I think, yes, I get that as a therapist, totally get that. And then as a human, I get that, um, you know, like, Even I'll see it playing out on social media where it's like this person, you know, said this one thing and it's like, and so clearly wrong. Like they should not have ever said that. And then yet I'm also like, and I see this other side of you. Like you are, you can't be reduced to this, this one thing. And and that's really hard because it would feel so much safer to just be able to say, because of this, you are this. And therefore I don't have to like even treat you as a human anymore. Um, that would be easier. It really would be, it would be very lonely, but it would be easier. (laughs) Yes, definitely. I love that. Um, I totally jumped around this whole question, (laughs) but I love the conversation that we've been able to have a question that I have for you too, is that where are you now versus where you, when you started this work? Great question. Yeah. Um, I grew up in an evangelical, AKA fundamentalist home. Um, my dad was a director at a evangelical free church camp, lived there on, on site, um, for years. Um, kind of one of those kids that like never remembers experiences outside of the church. Like that was just always a part of my life. Um, after I graduated from high school, I worked, I volunteered at the church. Then I worked at the church have a, you know, Christian ministry degree and Bible and youth ministry, like did all the things. Right. Um, I used to think that like, I was like in, and then I was out <laughs> but, um, part of my doctoral research was reading through my old journals, which was incredibly illuminating. And I saw that it actually was a much, much, much slower uh, a transition out was really trying to make it work, um, really trying to bend and shift and reshape myself in order to be able to be this person I thought I was supposed to be because that's who God said. Um, 
And so it took me a long time to kind of say, you know what, Uh, like, like I use like the Taylor Swift song. We are never, ever getting back together. Like it took me a long time to say like, we are never, ever getting back together. And, and it, it, it kind of, that kind of happened in a moment where I like had this epiphany where I like looked back and I was like, I have been striving for so long and I have tried everything. I've done every single thing that I'm supposed to. And I was supposed to have all these quote unquote blessings for doing it this way. And none of this has happened. And yet all the things that I have in my life are because they've worked hard and because, you know, all these things. And I was like, I, I don't know if God ever showed up for me or did I attribute these, the things that I did and I called them God. Um, and so, yeah, so it's weird to say like, I'm out or whatever. I, I don't love labels. Um, I, I don't like to even put a label on myself. Well, this is where I'm at, or this is where I'm not. I, I'm not anti-religious. Um, I think that can easily teeter to fundamentalism on the other side, where you say like, you have to be an atheist in order to like heal from religious trauma. I don't believe that. I just, that is just not within my being. Um, and so I'm not anti-religious, but I'm, I don't know. I'm just like a human who's not certain about a lot of things and really love that. Um, I, I think sometimes I really want a higher power to exist, um, maybe for my own sense of safety and security. I'm not sure I'm open to that idea. Um, but I'm also not tied to it either. Um, I am tied to things like love and compassion and humanity and like doing good because I'm human and you're human and like loving people because we're humans, not for some greater purpose. Um, but just to, to do that because we all deserve that. So I know that's not like a crystal clear answer because I don't even know that I have a crystal clear answer. And I'm like super open to things changing also. I mean, I hope that in five years I've evolved beyond this where I'm at today. And then I hope five years after that, I've evolved beyond that as well. I think that just, that makes sense to me. And so who knows, (laughs) you know, who who knows what I am? Honestly, the accepting of uncertainty sounds pretty healthy to me. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. For fundamental coming out of those systems, like that's, that's really hard. It can feel really disconcerting to say like, it's okay to not be certain about things. Um, I love it, but I know that's really scary for some people Mm -hmm. and I validate that fear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A fun question. Um, what are your favorite foods? Oh, um, like ice cream. I'm trying to think what else is my, I mean, I really love Mexican food. Um, watermelon. That's my good. Yeah. <laughs> I love watermelon. It's amazing. Yes. So good. Um, and last question that I ask everyone, how are you becoming? Ooh, okay. I'm going to go back to my answer of the uncertainty piece. Um, that, I mean, I love that what you're asking, cause it's like so big and open, there's no right answer that feels really congruent to who I am. And so this idea of becoming is like that openness of like not having to be certain and just leaving room for all possibilities. And I think that that's, that's just something that's really important just in, in my day-to-day life of growing, learning, being open, 
having other people in my life that are, that show up as them and like being curious about that, um, growing with more compassion towards myself. Like, um, yeah, those, again, I know it's like big and vague, but that's like, that's part of, yeah, the becoming process is just like leaning into every moment without like a preconceived notion of what it needs to be like. Yeah. I love that. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you. Oh, I appreciate you too. It's been such a lovely conversation.